You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. According to the American Cancer Society, over 21,000 new cases of ovarian cancer are diagnosed each year, with 15,000 more women dying from it annually. What are the recent developments in research to improve these odds? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Robert Bristow. Dr. Bristow is Director of the Kelly Gynecologic Oncology Service and the Johns Hopkins Ovarian Cancer Center of Excellence. His primary research interests include radiographic imaging of gynecological cancers, the surgical management of cancers of the ovary and endometrium, the patterns of healthcare delivery for women with gynecological cancer, among others. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Bristow. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. Why is ovarian cancer so difficult to treat? Well, one of the reasons is that it tends to present at a, a very advanced stage at the time of diagnosis. In contrast to some of the other gynecologic cancers, like cervical cancer, which can be detected by a pap smear, and uterine cancer, which usually presents very early with abnormal vaginal bleeding, the ovaries are confined to the abdominal cavity, and there really aren't any signs or symptoms that an early cancer is present. And so usually by the time signs and symptoms develop, the cancer is already spread beyond the ovary into the abdominal cavity and involves other structures like the intestine and the omentum and, and the diaphragm. And so it's, it's really a problem in the delay of diagnosis because the symptoms are, are relatively late to, to uh, present themselves and are fairly nonspecific when they do present. So what's the latest research in ovarian cancer treatment? There's a lot of interest in ovarian cancer research because it is the most lethal of all the gynecologic cancers, predominantly as a result of presenting at an advanced stage. So there are a number of uh, very high-quality researchers across the country and indeed across the world that have devoted their entire professional careers to ovarian cancer research, and it's, it's really directed at multiple angles. One area is research on surgery for ovarian cancer because that still remains the cornerstone of initial treatment, both to establish a correct diagnosis for women with early-stage disease and assign a, uh, an appropriate surgical stage of disease, but but also for women that have advanced stage disease, we uh, engage in this procedure called debulking or surgical cytoreduction. And it is a, a fairly labor-intensive process where we basically try to excise all or most of the disease that's present within the abdomen and pelvis uh, at the time of surgery. And so much of the current research uh, on surgery is devoted to trying to figure out uh, better and safer ways that we can accomplish these uh, often extensive procedures more safely for the patients, but also more effectively from a surgical standpoint. One of the other sort of unique features about ovarian cancer is that because it spreads within the abdomen and pelvis, it tends to confine itself to the peritoneal cavity for much of its clinical course. And so it tends not to invade beyond the, uh, the peritoneal lining of the abdomen and pelvis. And so a lot of contemporary research is, is devoted towards trying to develop more intensive ways of treating the cancer that's confined to the peritoneum, or we, we say local regional therapies, such as intraperitoneal chemotherapy, where the chemotherapy drug is actually delivered directly into the abdomen and uh, the patient undergoes something of a, a wash with the chemotherapy, because we know that by doing that, we can deliver a much higher concentration of drug to the area that's at greatest risk for containing uh, residual cancer cells. Does that avoid systemic side effects? Well, it produces a different sorts of toxicity, so it doesn't avoid the systemic toxicity altogether because depending on which drug is used, you can get as much as 70% of that drug that's put into the peritoneal cavity absorbed systemically. Mm -hmm. So you do get some systemic 
toxicity from some drugs, for example, cisplatin, where we know that about 70% of that drug is going to be absorbed systemically. In contrast, a drug like Taxol, we put that into the belly, and that's such a large molecule that a relatively small amount of it is absorbed, and so the toxicity is, is actually much more manageable with a drug that's like Taxol that's not absorbed to a great extent systemically. Now, let's go back to the debulking surgery. Does it matter who does the surgery? Well, that's a very good question, and it, it seems to matter quite a great deal. You know, physicians that are within my specialty of gynecologic oncology have at a minimum had three additional years of training beyond the usual OBGYN residency program where we specifically focus on treating nothing but gynecologic cancer. And the surgeries for women with advanced ovarian cancer are oftentimes very extensive procedures and quite complex. A uh, resection of a portion of the colon or intestine is usually required and 40 or 50% of those operations will frequently have to remove extensive parts of the uh, peritoneum lining the abdominal cavity and may even have to remove part of the diaphragm or the peritoneal lining over the diaphragm because that's quite a frequent place for the cancer cells to collect. And so the gynecologic oncologists have a specific surgical training to do these procedures, but they're also adept at, at managing these patients postoperatively because the postoperative care for these patients is relatively unique because of the nature of the surgery. And the other nice thing about the specialty of gynecologic oncology is that we are trained to really take a very holistic approach to managing the patients so that we're trained in not only the surgery but in management of the postoperative care, but also the administration of chemotherapy and management of chemotherapy-related side effects. So it's really, uh, I think that's probably the ideal circumstance for the patient because they can basically get one-stop shopping for their entire care plan for the ovarian cancer. The expertise that G1 oncologists have is important because we know that G1 oncologists are much more likely to be able to perform a comprehensive staging operation for women with early-stage ovarian cancer, which allows us to make a recommendation for postoperative chemotherapy in a very specific way that's directed at the precise stage of disease. And then secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we know that if a woman with advanced stage ovarian cancer has her surgery done by a gynecologic oncologist, she's going to have a much higher likelihood of having what we call an optimal or a complete resection, meaning that all or most of the tumor is removed at the time of that surgery compared to if she has that surgery done by a general OBGYN or even a general surgeon. The reason that that's important is when we look at the prognostic variables for women with advanced stage ovarian cancer, there are, there are many prognostic factors, including the age of the patient, her overall general medical condition, whether or not there's ascites or fluid in the abdomen present at the time of surgery, and the intrinsic sensitivity to chemotherapy of the, of the cancer cells. But the amount of residual tumor that's remaining after that initial surgery is one of the most important prognostic factors with women having smaller amount of tumor doing much better than women that have large amounts of tumor after surgery. And indeed, that is the only prognostic factor that we as clinicians can influence once that patient walks through our office door. All of the other prognostic factors have already been predetermined. So that initial surgical attempt is really the most critical part of the whole ovarian cancer treatment program. So I, w I would say, yes, it matters a great deal who, who does that initial surgery. Yeah, interesting that, that you can actually see survival rates being dependent on the specialty of the surgeon. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, that's a, a fairly little known fact. And it's a fact that we're trying to increase awareness of because I think the general public and even the general medical community is not acutely aware of that. And I think in large part because ovarian cancer is not one of the most common cancers, even though it's a, a large cause of gynecologic cancer-related morbidity and mortality, there are only about 23,000 cases in the U.S. every year. 
So it's, it's, it's barely a tenth of the number of breast cancer cases that occur in the United States. And so there's not as much attention devoted to some of these more critical issues for a, a woman with ovarian cancer as we'd like to see. And, and that's one of the reasons that we focus on trying to get the word out about the importance of it. We did a research study in Maryland a few years ago and found that somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 percent of women were actually having their initial surgery done by gynecologic cancer specialists or, or G1 oncologists, which is an alarmingly small number. We've actually updated that series so that we know that now more recent numbers between 2001 and 2008 show that that, that percentage is increasing closer to 50 or 60 percent. Uh, that's certainly an encouraging trend for us, but we'd like to have that number closer to 100%. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Bristow, Associate Professor in the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics. We are discussing the treatment of ovarian cancer. Dr. Bristow, what trials are you working on now? We're working on a number of things. Most of the current interest, and certainly the, the things that we're working on at Hopkins, are, are devoted towards a more intensive local regional therapeutic approach to women with ovarian cancer. And so we're looking at the whole concept of intraperitoneal chemotherapy and trying to tinker with the drug profile or drug cocktail that we use to put into the abdomen to make it not only more effective, but, but also try and make it better tolerated by the patient so that there aren't as many side effects with that treatment. We're also looking at a, a really much more intensive local regional therapy approach where we do the debulking surgery, and at the same time we do the surgery, we do a procedure that, that's called HIPEC or hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy perfusion, so that after we've successfully surgically removed the tumor in the abdomen, we actually wash the abdomen with a heated chemotherapy solution for 60 to 90 minutes. That seems to be holding promise for uh, having an even more effective response for controlling the peritoneal spread of the cancer. It's actually done in the OR while the patient's under anesthesia. We know that, that hyperthermia by itself has anti-cancer properties, and when it's combined with chemotherapy, the heat seems to uh, accentuate the effectiveness of the chemotherapy in terms of uh, increasing the, the depth of penetration that the chemotherapy can go into the peritoneal layer and any remaining cancer cells. So obviously that's a fairly labor-intensive procedure, and so we're, some of our research efforts are focused on trying to make that, again, safer and as effective as possible. We're also looking at uh, new uh, chemotherapeutic drugs and trying to partner those drugs with what we call biologic response modifiers, and probably the one that's generated the, the greatest interest lately is an angiogenesis inhibitor. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that to grow, cancer cells and deposits need a very good blood supply, and they have a capacity to generate new blood vessel growth wherever they deposit themselves. And this newer class of drugs called angiogenesis inhibitors basically blocks that process. And so that's one of the very exciting areas of research is to see if we can combine that blockage of new blood vessel growth, more conventional chemotherapy drugs, to try and enhance the effectiveness of uh, the standard chemotherapy treatments. Lots of work to be done, huh? Well, there's always going to be lots of work to be done with ovarian cancer. I think that it's a very devastating disease for the patient, but if you look back over the last 20 to 25 years, there have been significant incremental improvements in the outcomes for these patients. You know, 25 years ago, we would have said that the, the median survival for a woman newly diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer was somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three years. And nowadays, we're seeing reports of clinical trials of women who do undergo a successful debulking surgery at an experience center and get 
aggressive local regional intraperitoneal chemotherapy treatment with these treatments now producing median survival times of five years or longer. So, you know, I think if anybody had asked 10 or 20 years ago whether we thought we'd see a median survival of five years or more for women with uh, stage 3 ovarian cancer, they said you were crazy. But those are findings are really becoming a reality nowadays. Well said. Well, thank you for sharing your experiences with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. We've been speaking with Dr. Robert Bristow from Johns Hopkins about the latest developments in the treatment of ovarian cancer. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcasts, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening. Hello, I'm Dr. Carrie Rimmel, University of Louisville Healthcare, Louisville, Kentucky. You are listening to the first national radio channel created specifically for medical professionals, ReachMD XM157.